From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. This week, we bring you RTGS Global rolls out stage one of Liquidity Visibility Network in collaboration with Microsoft. Banks work with FinTechs to conquer deep fake fraud, and PayPal terminates accounts linked to a Russian-influenced operation. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 461 of FinTech Insider. I'm Sam Mall, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, for today, Sarah Kachansky. How are you, Sarah? I am good, thank you. It seems to be you and I have got a bit of a double act going. I think the last time I did this was with you as well. That's true. I and mean, it works well. How was is, how is lovely London? I don't live in London. I haven't been to London since March. So um, I don't know what's happening in, in London, really. I mean, it sounds like Pret's gone, which is very disappointing to me. I mean, if Pret would like to open a shop uh, in, in Buckinghamshire, I'd be very happy to drive to it. Um, but I don't, I don't really know much else. Well, that's kind of sad. Oh, well. I, I miss London, everybody. I miss food, everybody. I'm stuck in Jacksonville, <laughs> Florida. We have an Applebee's. I make that joke every time I'm on here. It's still funny to me. All right. With that... As is normal, we're joined remotely by incredible guests making a welcome return. We have Andrew Smith. He's the co-founder of RTGS Global. How are you, Andrew? Not bad, thanks. And not been in London either. Well, damn it. I was going to ask you how London <laughs> was. You're ruining this. What part of the world are you in? I can tell you how good Kent is. I mean, it's lovely today. Yeah, Kent is always lovely. That's not fair. All right. I think we're going to be 0 for 4. Also making a return, we have Joe Blumendahl, digital strategist at MyTech, and I'm going to guess you're in Amsterdam. Uh, good one, yes. It's pretty sunny here, so nowhere near London either. This will be a sans London show, evidently. But on that note, why don't we jump in and get started? We have a lot to cover today. Our first story actually comes from Finextra, and it's an RTGS global story, go figure, in collaboration with Microsoft. Cross-border transaction network RTGS Global has launched the first stage of its operational rollout to boost visibility of interbank liquidity. The RTGS Global's tool will be offered as an automatic add-in to Microsoft Azure. How cool is that, everybody? It's going to be available to 43,300 banks around the globe. And I know many of you are going, there's 43,300 banks around the globe? Yes, uh, probably 43,000 of them are in the US. The technology functions by checking in to see banks' liquidity, confirming the available liquidity, and locking in this liquidity for the beneficiary bank. This means that as soon as the transaction is agreed, the exchange takes about 50 milliseconds, which is basically instantaneous. So Andrew, I mean, this is your baby, let's, let's be honest. You helped co-found RTGS. So do you kind of want to expand on this? Yeah, yeah, happy to do so. Let's just say, actually, it's Nick Ogden's baby, right? I seem to be his partner in crime. So, <laughs> yeah, if, if you look at how we started ClearBank, it's Nick Ogden's baby, and I seem to be, uh, I seem to be the one who he has an idea, and then I try and make it something real, if that makes sense from a technology standpoint, at least. Yeah, as as the father of four, there's always one that has to take care of the baby. <laughs> I, I'm a babysitter. Okay, right. Yeah, so. Um, Really, I should really say a little bit more about what, what RTGS globally is, what it's about, uh, and what we were trying to solve. I think a lot of the banks and, and participants that we've been talking to, that's the first question they ask, so, you know, what are you trying to solve? So, you know, Nick had a vision, or oh, I'm going to date him now, but it's probably back in 25 years ago when he set up WorldPay. He took a big exception to um, the challenges for cross-border payments. And essentially, that's because WorldPay was a global company. It's moving money cross-border all the time. And he actually coined a phrase that I hear a lot now, especially from, I uh, didn't say this word, but XRP people and stuff that 
you know, he, he kind of phased back in, I think it's 98, 99 or something like that, that it was quicker for him to get on a plane and fly his cash to Australia than it was to actually send it directly. Um, now, he's always had this vision that he wanted to really resolve that kind of issue with cross-border transactions. And when we started to build our clear bank, we went on a big journey of kind of understanding what market infrastructure looks like in, in domestic payment rails, in central banks, and then cross-border and a wider network. And you really see the problem from a different perspective. So about 18 months ago, we really started to look at, okay, is this actually solvable? You know, could, could we solve this? Um, and Nick wanted to look at, you know, three main areas. And, and we kind of agreed that we would try and focus around uh, the experience, the friction, and, and it's a bit uncool un- to say this, but the risk associated with cross-border transactions. So when we started to look at the experience, we said, well, you know, um, everybody has an expectation now of real time. I want everything instant and real time. So cross-border transactions should be any different, to be honest with you. It really shouldn't. So we wanted to have this concept of atomic settlement. And, and I can talk about that later if, I, if, if somebody wants to be bored by what that actually is in our world. Um, we wanted to ensure that the fees were consistent and, and really transparent. One of the big issues that you have, especially with using banks when you send a transaction or larger transactions, is that by the time it gets to the ultimate beneficiary, it's not quite the same amount of money that you thought you'd sent them. So we wanted to make sure that if I say I'm going to send, you know, two million pounds sterling, it, they, they receive two million pounds sterling. We didn't want any limits on the transactions at all. You know, if I want to send one pound sterling or a hundred million, you should have the capability across an infrastructure to do that. Um, and we kind of started to identify that the big challenge around this was it's not so much a tech one, but it's actually around understanding liquidity and where it was. So that's where we kind of started to move towards this liquidity network. The second big focus area was removing friction. Now, friction in, in our world was two things. The first one was uh, inclusivity. And we wanted to try and make sure the network was open to exotic currencies. It's open to everybody across the globe to, to benefit from real-time experiences and, and cross-border transactions. But also in terms of friction, uh, the cost. How much does it actually cost banks to move the money? How much does it cost you and I as the, as the, the end customer or corporates? Um, and it's funny because Nick did this little case study and he, he spent some time trying to work out what cost was. And he came up with this figure of $2.7 trillion. Um, on his travels, he was speaking to the World Bank and they said, Nick, you are, you are drastically wrong. <laughs> we'll come back and tell you what that actually looks like. And they came back with a figure of about $15 trillion a year is wasted in friction costs for cross-border transactions alone. Is that the number he originally came up with? Two two seven trillion, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what Nick came up with, and they came back with fifteen trillion, and their numbers bounced around a little bit. But and it's it's it was such an important number to Nick that it, it's um, we decided to put it on the on our website. So if you scroll down the front page of the website, we have a real time counter of of what friction cost is looking like so far this year, um, and we started that at one minute past midnight at the start of the year, and you can see what it's counted up to right now. I didn't tell you because the numbers move so quickly. I can't actually articulate it. And the third area, sorry to jump around a bit, but the third area was we wanted to look at risk. So cross-border transactions is fraught with a number of risks involved. The first one is there is a bit of a concentration risk around the market infrastructure that's available. There is really only one provider to actually send this stuff. Um, and then something called Herstat risk. You know, what happens if your transaction, um, whilst it's in flight or in its journey, and one of the banks goes into administration? What does that actually look like? How do you actually guarantee the funds back to the banks that you sent it from or back to the ultimate customer? So they're, they're the big areas that we wanted to solve. Um, and in layman's terms, essentially, that's what we think we've done. 
we had a, a great couple of, uh, well, a great 18 months talking about this and the last 12 months actually building it. I can talk a little bit about how we went around that. But essentially, we've now got that platform up and running, that market infrastructure that there and is available. We have banks coming into our sandbox environment, and we call it stage one simply because if you're going to build something like a market infrastructure, you can't just expect everyone to jump on board overnight. You can't just have this announcement saying it's live, everybody on board, and away you go. Um, you, You can't do that, right? So we understand it's a stage process, and we have to take regulators, central banks, and uh, the, the banks themselves on a journey. And stage one is basically saying the infrastructure is here. It's globally there. It's uh, The footprint is there. You can use it. You can play with it. You can test it. You can involve your correspondents. You can decide to play in a more closed group with just your banks that you already interact with. Um, and give us feedback. You know, let us understand what you think. The thing I liked the most, Andrew, was the story about getting on a plane <laughs> be easier to move. The reason is that's that's a backstory for Asimo, actually, one yeah. of the co-founders. Can I can I ask a question? Well, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But um I sort of get about 50% of this. This I've done quite well then. Yeah. Well, I have sat down, I should say that I have sat down with Andy on several occasions, both in his current role and his previous role, and he's tried to explain some of this to me before. Um I am very much not the back end person. But as a front end person, for me, as as a, a consumer, as, a, as an individual, so I, I understand a bit about corporates, definitely, that makes a lot of sense. Do the benefits come down to me? So say I want to send money to my sister. She lives in New Zealand. At the moment, I use TransferWise because it is the cheapest uh, option to do that. It's not particularly quick, but it's no slower than than any other options. So will this mean TransferWise gets faster or is this kind of a competitor to something like TransferWise? Is this something that the banks use to like m- make their own TransferWises? What does it mean for me sending money to New Zealand? <laughs> yeah, so, so let's start with you and then. Or, or, yeah, I mean, I'm a difficult case. No, 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 no. I'm a difficult case, so yeah. <laughs> no, um, so actually, what we want to do is actually provide the infrastructure that allows the banks to um, provide this service out to their end customers. And it doesn't matter who their end customers is. And we didn't want to sit there and say, this is targeted purely at SMEs or this is targeted purely at investment banking. This is. No, this is an infrastructure play that's actually allowed you to, as a bank, to choose. I can offer this to my retail customers, but I can also do my investment banking business through it if I wish. Um, so for you, in theory, you could go to your bank and actually execute a transaction down to New Zealand, and it would instantly clear and settle between the two banks. That's what our infrastructure does. And then it actually captures the full edge-to-edge, so you would know when your sister had actually received the funds. And likewise, she could potentially know when you'd actually sent the funds. Now that's that's and it's really the sexy part, you know. Um, for me, that's really sad mm. me saying this on there. But anything that's infrastructure, <laughs> you're in the right company. I know, I know. We talked about calling me Muffin before we started this. Paul <laughs> can refer to me as Muffin, but to me, that's the sexy part: is any the infrastructure, the underlying solutions, right, that make this move so fast? Because it's frustrating as hell. If I want to send a picture of a muffin. To Sarah, no problem, right? I want yeah. to send Sarah money for the muffin. God bless it. It's a pain and, in the ass. And what's interesting is, sorry, Sarah, what's interesting is that's, that's kind of like bringing it down to our end, our end experiences and our expectations. Actually, the problem gets ramped up the further you go up the chain in terms of the value. So if you're a corporate, you know, you're, um, I, I shouldn't really use names really, but let's say you're a, a you make planes and you need to buy engines from a particular <laughs> particular <laughs> provider, for example, right? Those those amounts of money that you're moving 
is not small amounts of money. Right? You want to know that when you've sent it, they've got exactly what you said and you sent it on that particular value date and bang, it's gone. Um, they want that real-time experience as well. So the, that part of that infrastructure play is saying, yeah, that's valuable to Sarah, but it's also valuable to me who makes planes. And you know, on top of that, you've then got investment banks and the amounts of money that they need to move. It's, it's, it's appealing to those guys. And the benefit that we've kind of looked at, and the reason why we said it's a liquidity network is we want to pull the banks in who hold the liquidity and they're holding that centrally. And so whatever other experiences or options there are out there, whether it's a transfer wise or whether you are using an XRP or whatever, at the end of the day, fiat currency is sitting somewhere liquid or you need it to be liquid to facilitate a transaction. And we make that um, visible and auditable. Does it mean if I'm a bank, like a bank that implements this, I lose money because the money's moving faster and I'm not holding it to make money on the deposits? Oh, so, so the answer is technically no, but there's other, well, or technically you may do if you're one of those banks that likes to hold onto big balances for a number of days before you decide to process it, you know, you, you may uh, lose something there. But um, there's other benefits of moving money atomically. Right. So that can be based on your capital, your liquidity, the way you do your planning around that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because we see two different buying units coming back out from the banks themselves. And the most obvious one is, is that treasury function. You know, they want to manage liquidity better. They want to be far more efficient with it. Um, and then the second part is actually saying um, for treasury, you know, how do I de-risk this? How do I make sure that I haven't got these massive risk-weighted assets and collateral sitting in particular places that's encumbered? So there's a big buying center. And then you have the customer experience, which is people in the banks who are actually saying, Sarah, your experience is really important to me. How do I actually keep you as a customer or, and, and give you better customer experiences and outcomes by making things cheaper because we've removed friction from there. Uh, and I've made you happier because it's also not only cheaper, but it's also instant in real time. How do I stop you using TransferWise, basically? Yeah, so now I've got two questions, and I, I'm, I'm sure I understand far less than Sarah does of the 50%. This is definitely not my world. So there's, I'm trying to understand why it's not a technical problem, why it's a liquidity problem, because the question behind that is, why is it taking so long to solve? And the other one I would have is, why is friction so expensive in this system? Or where does the cost go, and who's benefiting from that? Yeah, so... so- Question one, um, liquidity is the problem because essentially right now, if I if I make a cross-border transaction, um, I either need to pre-fund that, so I need to go and buy that currency to be able to use that. That's not in all cases. That's in some of the cases. Other cases, you're using credit from the, the bank on the other side. So, um, and, and that's all interesting because if you're using credit, it's based on a promise that I'll give you the cash later. Or if you're pre-funding, it means I've got to buy it because you don't trust me to have the cash later. So that actually becomes a liquidity problem. And the reason why nobody's really done this before is because technically I, I personally don't think it was possible until the last 12, 14 months. Um, so it becomes a technical problem. So the reason liquidity is a problem is actually a technology problem. And what do I, why do I say that? So if you want to be able to see liquidity in real time and you want to be able to lock it and you want to be able to do this thing like atomic settlement, then you need to have a network that's globally, um, you know, it, it's globally spanning. You have a global footprint and you have an SLA at a technical level between points on it. So I need to know how long it takes me to send a message from New York to Singapore. I need to know that because if I'm going to try and clear and settle this transaction kind of simultaneously, I can't afford for one side of the transaction to be settled in, you know, a millisecond or 50 milliseconds and the other side, you know, eight hours later. You just can't have that or 
you know, bad example, 20 seconds later. So you need to have that global footprint. Now, there's not many providers out there that has a private backbone that spans the entire globe to give you an SLA at a network level. Um, Microsoft has got there and has got there because of the billions that's invested into Microsoft Azure since day one and the billions it continues to invest going forward. So that actually gave us that underpinning of the telecoms and the infrastructure. The second part is that, and I think people forget this, is actually even if you're connecting something, um, you're connecting onto this highly resilient platform, how did you connect onto it? Was that highly resilient as well? So the connectors that we deploy through um, Azure's marketplace to say, right, here's a component, it comes with Microsoft Azure, just download it in the portal. That subscription, that environment that you need to have, that needs to be highly available too. So that needs to have you know, uber high resilience and deal with DR and recovery so that you can stay on the network and you can stay working. And Microsoft has started introducing these high availability zones globally. So whilst they've had them in the UK for like 12, 14 months, Europe for, for you know maybe a couple of years, you need this globally to have that footprint. You need to also be able to say that these messages have a known path and you need to have, be able to say that data residency for those particular banks has to be in the correct jurisdiction. So it, these kind of things, are nothing, no, nothing individually is groundbreaking to say this massive big change in technology to deliver this. It's an incremental of these five or six or seven little things that have actually all added up to say, now you can actually deliver this particular platform in the way that, that we had that vision. And because we can now deliver it, it now actually starts to tackle that liquidity problem. And I've forgotten your second question. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was wondering what the, uh, the, the actual costs in, in the friction is. Yeah, yeah so friction, uh, without going into you know, too much about how long it actually takes to actually move money and, and the journey that it goes through, there's a number of um, legs essentially to, to a transaction. So typically in a perfect world, you'll think it's bank A pays bank B. But actually because of the, um, the way that, banks set up and their, their risk appetites and, and the actual way that they hold particular currencies and the relationships they have. And actually, some of that is a technology problem. Right? I can't have a relationship with bank B and C because that means my ops department and my IT team are going to actually structure security around communicating safely with, with bank A and B. So you do have a limitation there. So because of that, what you end up with is this system that has a number of legs so to move money from the US to Singapore, you may actually have gone through four or five different banks. Now, each one of those banks is receiving money as and when it can, as soon as it can. They then go through their finger on policies. They go through their risk appetite. They then check everything is actually correct to so then pass it on to the next correspondent. But to do that, they take a little a charge. And then the next correspondent, they do it all again, and they take another little charge. And the next correspondent, until it actually gets to the end, which is why you had that experience sometimes that our COO, Gordon Cooper, he, he still pays money back to uh, Singapore from Canada. And he says, every time I make a transaction from Canada to Singapore, they get a different amount. It's the same amount they're asking for every single month. And yet it's, a, it's kind of like this black, mysterious box that, that, you know, randomly, it's just a different amount. And that's because it's taken a different route or because there's different charges in there. Now, those charges all add up. The speed adds up. And then, obviously, if you're not receiving that money quick enough, then you may have had to pay interest on that or you've borrowed against that. So when you calculate all these things together and you put it on a global scale, cost soon starts ramping up to about $15 trillion of, of, of dollars locked in this kind of process between A and B which sounds a ridiculous amount of money because it is an absolute vast amount of money. Um, but imagine a world, though, if everybody starts yeah, embracing atomic settlement, uh, moving away from legacy platforms now, 
um, you'd actually see that that 15 trillion comes back into the world at a time when we probably need it the most. So, um, unfortunately, Sam has left us, not through any uh, decision of his own, but apparently there's been a power cut in the midst of a massive thunderstorm over where he is in Florida, and it doesn't look like he's going to get his tech back up and running anytime soon. So, um, uh, pivot, and uh, now you've got me hosting. So, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, um, but let's see how we go. And let's start by moving on to our second story today. So this is that banks work with fintechs to counter deep fake fraud. So banks are setting up partnerships to combat the use of doctored video and audio content by fraudsters, as research shows such deep fake crimes are the biggest worry among consumers. HSBC US this week became the latest bank to sign up to a biometric identification system developed by technology firm MyTech and offered through a partnership with Adobe to check the identities of new customers using live images and electronic signatures. Fake audio and video content is now the top way artificial intelligence can be used for crime based on the harm it can cause, the potential for profit, ease of use and how difficult it is to stop. However, the greatest increase in deepfake frauds may be aimed directly at individuals rather than their banks. So it's recently been estimated that phishing attempts have a 60 to 70% success rate. Wow. Uh, The use of AI to personalize the message with names or references that only friends or family would know would risk taking that success rate even higher. So, Joe, I feel like you might have some thoughts on this one. Shall I come to you first? Yes, uh, thanks, Sarah. Uh, thanks for taking over the hosting. Yeah, so this yeah, really the deep fake is the next step in the evolution of fraud. Fraud's always been around. Uh, we all know that during the pandemic, it's gone through the roof again. Uh, if that was possible, it's rising and all sorts of different tactics. But the deep fake is is certainly one of the uh, most concerning ones because it it really ties or uh, works on on the fundamental. Uh, human attitude that we trust things that we see and hear and deep fakes are around uh, videos so we're looking at people that we think we can trust or we recognize but actually it's somebody else or it's 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 a completely synthetic identity and um, similar for voices as well so there's um, yeah it's definitely a big concern and 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 in the context of banking <clears throat> it's a big concern because it uh, can hit our financial system quite hard uh, and that's why i think uh, a lot of banks uh, and the one uh, here in the, uh, you just called out in, in the article uh, has taken a leap forward and said, listen, we need to start um, embedding technology, integrating technology that can help us combat that. And to answer the second question is how do we, how do we look at that? How do we um, prevent deep fakes? It's throwing up hurdles. Um, and it's all about identity verification uh, for the banks settled into their largest sort of KYC and AML puzzle uh, that they need to solve every time they onboard a new client. That could be a consumer or or a company. So this is the more advanced version of um, when you sign up for a lot of banks uh, online these days. You don't just take a picture of your face. You have to blink and then move your head to the left or to the right. This is where you know we're getting even more advanced than that. And and some kind of deep fake could be used that actually doctors your picture where you are blinking or or moving your head. I suppose. Um, what what was um, my tech role specifically in this? Because there's a few names that I mentioned there. So what is it that, that yeah. you guys actually did? Yeah. So unfortunately, I can't talk about specific use cases or <laughs> clients. We're 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 a listed company as well. Um, what we what wh- where we make it really difficult for the fraudsters. Well, let's let's take a step back. The reason the fraudsters are doing this now is because uh, it's a catch up game between them and us, really. Um, 
up to a while ago, fraud was easy to spot. I remember the days I'd get an email was full of spelling mistakes. I knew immediately, well, this is rubbish and I'm going to ignore it. Today, it's become much more sophisticated. I recently saw, saw a text message on somebody's phone um, and uh, it read very naturally. And that was a, like an interaction between a mother and a daughter. Uh, and it was a phishing attack, clearly. But that took three or four attempts back and forth for us to find out that that was actually happening. So it's, it's, it's understanding the tactics. Uh, it's raising the level of uh, sort of distrust, if you will, with, uh, with consumers to understand. And the way we combat it is advise banks to throw up as much hurdles as we can. And one of them is liveness on, on the face. So today, opening a bank account, we can't just rely on KBI, KBAs. Uh, the banks can't just rely on bureau data checks or things like that because the data's out on the street. It's for sale on, on, the, on, on, on the black market, if you will. Uh, it's dead cheap. So now we have to fall back, if you will. I've talked about being stuck between a rock and a hard place in identity verification world for, for a while. We have to fall back onto using whatever we used to use or are used to using in the physical world, i.e. our passport, ID card, driver's license, in the digital channel. But you can't do that in isolation. You need to also prove that I'm uploading my own identity document. And that's where the face comes in, and that's where the liveness comes in, and that's where the deep fakes are coming in now as well. And Andy, did you want to add anything on that, or do you have any questions? Given the way the last section went, do you have any questions for, for Joe? <laughs> um, so, so, no, not really, because essentially this is something that um, when, we, when we started ClearBank, we looked at... Um, what our customers were doing in terms of identity for for onboarding, um, it, it's kind of interesting because I think deep fake is is coming around because we're trying to solve um, digital problems with an analog start. If that makes sense, it, does that make sense? I mean, our credentials and none of them are really digital in the first place, and how did they get issued to me? So it's kind of like I feel that the banks are taking the lead in this, and it's some fab technology that's trying to stop or to capture this and to counterfeit it. Um, so it, it's really interesting to see where this will go, especially if you look at how identity may change over the next you know, 12, 24 months. It's also something we've been looking at in terms of RTGS Global. How do we actually look at um, trust across the network, but trust across the, the banks who vote for the network and their ultimate customers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that, that point about digital identity versus physical identity, well, you know, physical versus digital kind of in terms of the assets you have. And, you know, you're seeing some really interesting things like um, identifying you from kind of your, your the way you hold your phone or your swipe pattern, you know, arguably that is harder to replicate than perhaps some other things that, you know, like a, a passport or a driving license. But on the other hand, if you have sophisticated enough software, you can simply install it on somebody's phone, see what they do, and then you copy the pattern and, and replicate it. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on this, but the, the idea about a digital identity is, is a really interesting one because it's one that we hear about quite a lot. Um, Joe, do you have a digital ID scheme in the Netherlands? I know we, we definitely don't here in the UK. I know that across Scandinavia, they have some sort of national digital ID scheme. Is, is that something that they, they have in the Netherlands or is, is that something that you're waiting no, for as well? No, no, no. It's all very much a patchwork throughout Europe <coughs> and also in the Netherlands. Ultimately, it's whatever exists is, and, and the control mechanisms is derived from, from the IDAS framework. So, no, there isn't a true digital ID in the Netherlands, nor is there in other countries. Yes, the Nordics have the translation from the bank ID that they, that they can use quite well, uh, but 
that's a good point. The interoperability and the true digital identity just doesn't exist yet. So uh, it's more of a digitized version of whatever we're using in the physical world that's the most reliable uh, now. And, 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 and the behavioral biometrics, because that's, that's the way you swipe your phone, et cetera, et cetera, that's an interesting one. And I think what we're now seeing is that um, as the forces uh, um, accelerate and this type of technology for deep fakes uh, is becoming cheaper and cheaper, more ac- accessible, and the computing power is increasing, which means that they can use it more often, um, means that we need to uh, layer in types of for prevention. So you're going to have multiple biometrics to interact with your bank throughout a payment journey or a customer journey and step up authentication necessary with multiple biometrics uh, to keep the system safe. And at onboarding, you can't, we can't just rely on a document anymore, document verification. We do need the biometrics and potentially uh, multiple biometrics until we have a true digital identity, whatever that means. Um, and uh, we can start using that. A, a little peek into that future is is probably the chip sitting in a lot of passports and IDs cards these days. So the NFC technology that you can uh, uh, combine with your mobile phone in many cases, that's much harder to defraud for the bad guys. I'm sure that's true if it actually works. But here you go. There's a little bit of insight. I got a new passport with a chip in, um, I think about two years ago. Um, and it, I got the new passport with a chip in like everybody did. Um, and I traveled all around Europe and I traveled to the US and it absolutely worked fine. And I got to Australia. Um, it, the system they have over there, um, as you come up to the gate, if you're from a specific list of countries, you put it into a machine, it scans it, and then it basically programs a chip so you can just scan your way through you don't have to speak to a customs guard or queue uh, but mine would not work now the last thing you want when you've gotten off a 27 hour flight is to stand there and go why isn't my passport working and i had to join the queue of people um who had come from countries not on the safe list i'm using inverted commas not on the approved list by the australian government and i got to the front and i was like what's the problem and he was like your chip don't work mate it's never worked you've got a dud chip and the reason that that had never come up before is that when you're going through a lot of other so in Europe, a lot of when they use the, the, you think you're putting a passport in to scan it and then they're scanning your face. They don't bother to look at the chip. The chip's completely irrelevant to that. It's just doing the, the photo matching. Um, so I, I am, I'm skeptical of these chips. <laughs> I went two, two years around the world without realizing I've got a dud one. Rightfully so. And, that, and now put it into consumers' hands who have an iPhone or whatever, and now they need to read out that chip. First, they need to take a picture of the the bio page, as we call it, of the identity document to be able to unlock the chip and then start putting the document on the phone in the right position. It's not as easy as it all sounds, but it is going to put us in a direction uh, that will make it harder. And this is back to the catch-up game that we're playing with with the forts. We have to try this. This this has to be done. Uh, otherwise, it's um, <clears throat> we're going to be overtaken and, and, and uh, the doors will be wider open to fraud. Yeah, I don't think this is the last we've uh, heard of digital identities, um, but I think I will call time on that for today because I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on the subject. Um, We're just going to take a quick break and we will be back shortly. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal human-centered service that puts the customer first. 
Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. Thanks for that, and on with the show. Right, uh, so let's jump back into the news with a story that um, I'm, I'm particularly fond of, but it's interesting that we're going to discuss it with, uh, with two I male know, guests. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I can do all the talking if need be. Um, so this story is that female-managed U.S. funds outperform all-male rivals. So to mark the centenary of U.S. women winning the right to vote, Goldman analyzed 496 large-cap U.S. equity funds with combined assets of $2.3 trillion to compare the performance of funds where at least one-third of the portfolio management roles were female versus teams run entirely by men. All women and mixed-gender U.S. fund teams outperformed all male portfolio management teams so far this year. Uh, So far this year, female managed funds on average delivered returns of minus 57 basis points. (laughs) That's this year. That's not the women uh, compared with their benchmarks. All male funds performed worse with average returns of minus 164 basis points. So just 14 of the 496 U.S. funds analyzed were run by all women teams. Uh, Goldman classified an additional 49 funds as female managed funds, uh, which were run by teams where at least one third of the managers were women. Uh, In contrast, 380 of the funds had all male teams. So um, it's, I mean, it's interesting that they have done this now. It's not actually news in my experience, because we've definitely had evidence, plenty of evidence before that more diverse teams generally outperform, uh, you know, single gender teams, whatever you're talking about. But we've definitely seen evidence of this in the uh, in the fund industry uh, before as well. I'm going to ask you your opinions on it, on the story, um, whichever aspect that is. So, you know, is it that why are we still hearing this? Was it news to you or is this something that you've heard before? You know, what do you take from it reading that? fully aware that I'm asking two men this question as a woman, but I'm genuinely interested to know what your take is on it. Yeah, okay. So so it's kind of interesting. I mean, it is something we've, I think we've all heard before. What was interesting I took from this was that it was actually the all-women groups performed better even than the mixed group, if that made sense. So that, that was quite interesting. But I think the real, the real story would have been trying to understand why there's so few women in that particular industry. And actually, a wider comment is that why is there so few women in, in certain industry? If I look at finance and tech, and you know where I've been stuck or in or operating in, whatever you want to say, for the last however many years, it's a similar thing. So if I look at engineering and finance, there's not many women who decide to come into that. Uh, so, so why? Why is that? Is it because there's some sort of um, attitude or interview? Is there some sort of you know barrier to entry? Is it just not something that appeals to certain types of people? I, I don't know. I think that would be really interesting to understand. And then understand why did women outperform, you know, all the women groups outperform the men. It's not like just 10% or 20% of it, it's a 100% success rate there. So that, that would be really interesting to, to try and grasp it. And it's not just that industry, right? And I get quite passionate about this because I've seen it happen so many times. And you have, especially in finance and engineering, you know, a woman will have a great, fantastic idea and somebody else will repeat it three minutes later as if it's their idea. And you're like, you've got to stand up there and just say, no, 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 sorry, that was Sarah's idea. She had a great idea. Don't don't try and copy it sort of thing. Um, and I've seen it actually, unfortunately, with my wife. She's She's been in business and, and companies and she's had, she's got a, a tech car, tech startup company. And, you know, not to, not to really 
belabor the point, but you know, she went into a meeting, described what the proposition was, talked a little bit about the tech. She's not a technologist, but she's the founder of that company. And to have somebody turn around and go, you know, you're, you're a woman, did you really come up with this? That's just you know, not, <laughs> it's not acceptable really in any, in any way, shape or form. But it does seem to happen in specific industries more than other. Yeah, I mean, I think in, from personal experience, this is an industry which is still rather tarred by that Wolf of Wall Street uh, dog-eat-dog world. Now, whether that's still accurate or not is completely irrelevant because if somebody of my age thinks that, then it must be a reasonably wide-held perception I would say that's fair even if women have eat, this even before you get into the why do women not ever think about doing stem subjects at school why why you know is it because they don't have the confidence is it because the way we teach them you know is it because of peer pressure you know that's the first bit but then even you know if you haven't done stem at school that's not to hold you back from going into something like fan management actually so what is holding you back at that point? Um, and then, of course, you go into the kind of the problems that are, are rampant across all of financial services, technology, it sounds like as well, you know, other industries, which is where historically the structures in place do not support women or they, or they you know, disincentivize women over for men, particularly if you look at things like maternity leave, you know, taking time off to have children, you know, uh, remote working. We're getting very into it right now, but historically wanting to be flexible or wanting to work remotely counted against you. So all of those kind of things, I think, I think build to this. I think, I think understanding why there are fewer women in fund management than men is more easy to get to the bottom of than why these teams so outperformed their male and mixed counterparts because the standard response or the go-to response would be well because women are more risk averse and in the most recent climate um being risk averse has probably you know done you a favor but i don't believe that that's the whole answer um joe i want to let you you speak because otherwise it becomes a risk of me just doing nine minutes on this story which i could do but i don't think it's that interesting yeah, so there's a hundred thoughts coming into my mind. I, I agree, Andrew. It's appalling if something like that happens. You, you just explained it to your wife. Also, the other thought was, <clears throat> I think it's um, not the same everywhere. If you look at the Nordics and even the country I live in, there's a little bit more room for uh, males to work part-time, maternity leave is shared a bit more, etc. And I'd be interested, I don't, just don't know the answer to the question, is that problem smaller in that sort of type of country? Uh, uh, yes or no. Uh, because we've seen the success of women-led companies uh, all, all across the board. I think there was a survey, I've tried to find it, but there was some sort of a um, study done uh, comparing um, female CEO-led companies to the S&P 500 uh, a while ago, and they outperformed uh, dramatically. It was twice or, or 3x, something like that. Um, we need the facts. The facts prove the point. And, um, uh, and the, the, the last thing I'd probably say is that uh, I think you probably pointed that direction, Andrew. Males need to change first for this problem. It's not the female. Uh, um, it's probably male and, and dominance and egos and that sort of stuff, throwing up barriers. And, uh, um, and, and, and even if you now um, start sharing this sort of information, that could inflate that problem, potentially. It's a threat all of a sudden. So um, I'm rambling, but that's what. Uh... <laughs> well, no, I think you make some some very valid points, and I 100% agree that you know women women have got to get there, but men have got to come along as well, or it's, it's not going to work. Otherwise, we're, we're beating on a closed door. But to your point about CEOs, I just wanted to raise that the day we're recording this, um, the first female CEO of a Wall Street bank has been appointed today, and that's Jane Fraser, who's taken over at City, um, which, um, as I said earlier, I'm. 
fantastic to see a woman in such a prominent role. I will caveat it with, of course, I don't know the woman. I have no idea if she'll be any good at the job. <laughs> Being a woman is not, and this is the thing that I think needs to, needs to be kind of drawn out a little bit sometimes is that being a woman is not prerequisite for being good at it it just happens that in this industry we seem to be better at certain things we want to know why that is but I just wanted to give that a shout out because that is brilliant news um really really good to see City you know having a a woman up there at the top so you'd like um, to think that the best people are in the best positions right absolutely and it's somewhere like City I am 100% sure that's true so um easy without sounding out of turn but I think when you look at even these funds and stuff like the women that are running them are probably the best of the best because they've had to work slightly harder. And that's that's not right either. But For what it's worth, I 100% agree with you, but I have to caveat it or people will come after me on social media and say, she only got the job because she's a woman. Um, and I won't be able to say otherwise because I don't actually know this particular woman and her skill set. But I 100% agree with you. And I think she's probably worked very, very hard to get there and it's well-deserved. Um, all right, I'm going to move us on to another story so that this is, <laughs> it's not gender related, I promise. So uh, this is that US fintech Jico has bought a bank. So um, Jico offers an account where all customer deposits are turned into treasury bills. Um, it's received the regulatory all clear to buy a bank, which is the Mid-Central National Bank, after securing approval from the uh, OCC and the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. With the bank's license in its hands, Jico is set to emerge from beta and launch its app-based account that immediately turns deposits into T-bills. When customers make a payment or an ATM withdrawal with their Jico card, the equivalent amount in T-bills is sold to cover it. Uh, Jico has spent the last three years quietly building the core infrastructure, which merges payment rails with real-time 24-7 principal trading capabilities on T-bills, which means that an investment can act as a liquid and spendable alternative to cash. The benefit of the model, says Jico, is that customers get to keep the yield on the treasuries. And I'm really upset Sam disappeared because I really would have loved to have his explanation of this story and this business model. Um, so, Andy, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah, so I think actually it's quite an interesting story. Um, the actual proposition may be not as important as the actual story context, if that makes sense. Um, I know we've seen a number of fintechs purchase banks or other institutions in the past. Um, I think it will be interesting to try and understand why those those fintechs feel the need to do that. Right. So in this particular case, it sounds like their proposition is very unique, in which case you need to get the banking license, you want to move quickly. Um, and let's face it, it's a lot easier probably to buy than to actually go out, build a team, go through the whole regulatory process and the steps that you, you need to do that. So I, I'm a big believer in focusing on what you do best. And so like JICO is focused on what they want to do. They know their core proposition of the tech and how they're going to deliver it. They then needed to build the bank around it, if that makes sense, in which case, just go and buy one. It, it makes a lot of sense to do it that way. And we might see that with, with other fintechs that see that actually the, the proposition requires them to hold a little bit more of the, the underpinning of the infrastructure. It's interesting um, because we have seen more of this in the US than we have uh, in the UK. So Lending Club uh, bought Radius Bank um, back in February this year. We have seen one case of it in the UK, which was Tandem Bank buying Harrods Bank. Um, it, it is it is it is less common, as you say. I think in the UK, certainly it's less common because getting a banking license um, 
well, it's probably, there are fewer banks, for a start, there are fewer banks here. So in America, there are so many banks that finding one that wants to sell is probably an awful lot easier. The second thing is, you know, as a startup, getting a banking license in the US has been very, very difficult, at least until the last 18 months or so, where there are a lot of moves now happening, which suggests um, a lot of the players that have previously relied on a partner for a license or perhaps this purchasing model, um, they might be finding it easier to get their own uh, license or charter, as they call them in the US, going forward. We saw Varo Money um, get its provisional license uh, earlier this year, but they did spend $100 million doing it. So, that's not um, a lot, though. I, I don't think that's actually a lot. If you actually sit there and you think, well, I've got to build out a bank, the time, the effort, the infrastructure, the people, and it's the people, policies and processes and everything else that's actually the hard part. It may be quite easy to get through the regulator in certain countries, but it's still the hard part is actually making sure you've ticked the masses of boxes to get there. So it makes a lot more sense to say 100 million, you're probably going to, are you going to spend that building it out and it's going to take you three, four times as long? Yeah, I was wondering, because if you, if you buy a bank, uh, I don't know who, who to ask the question, you're also buying a lot of legacy systems. I know the payment rails are extremely important, and I'd argue that potentially the relationship with the regulator, if it's, if it's a bank that's been around for a long time, is has some sort of a value as well. So those two, but also you're buying uh, a 50 or 60-year-old infrastructure sitting in the bank. So I was just wondering how, how they're going to glue that together. Is that, wouldn't it be easier to build it from scratch? I was going to say, you know, even listening to just what they've said there, they've spent three years building that core out. Uh, if, if I was sitting there as a CTO at JICO, so I, I would bin everything that's there technically beforehand. You're buying the bank in terms of not the, the IT infrastructure, you're buying it in terms of its infrastructural role in, mm. in banking and the, the people, the process, the policies, the procedures, the know-how, the experience, blah, 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 that comes with that. That's what you've bought. You, you've been the whole tech. You don't really need any of that stack. You, they've built their own. Of course, the question is that, that um, and I've said this before, I've, I've paraphrased Jason Bates before, but getting a license is easy, keeping it is harder. So if you've been the legacy technology that's allowed that bank to keep that license with federal, uh, federals, <laughs> with regulators' approval for however many years, how do you know that your technology is going to still be up to the task when the regulators come knocking annually? I don't know if they do this in the US, but come, you know, to check that it actually works um, and that you're still meeting, you know, you're still compliant because you're now using different technology. I think the important point is the difference in the US and the UK market as well to bring up there is that um, just taking a license from a bank as opposed to taking the technology is a really common model that's been used in the US for 10, 15 years. We're only just getting round to the idea of that in the UK. So I think there's just it's an interesting point that's worth bearing in mind that differences in the markets. Sorry, Andy, you were going to correct me on my point about technology, I'm sure. No, no, no. As I say, the, the reg, you know, people who have oversight and the regulator, they take an interest in technology in terms of its delivery, not the technology that you actually implement. And so they don't care if it's 30 years old or whether it's very modern. What they're understanding is, is it dealing with, have you got the sufficient controls? Have you got the sufficient processes? Are you resilient? Now, if you can tick those three boxes, you're more likely to be able to tick them with, with new tech than you are with the legacy stuff. So it's actually about the, the, those areas as opposed to the technology itself when you want to get regulated. So I, I think, you know, bin, it, bin that tech by, by the, the people, the process, the, the know-how of all the boxes that you need to tech to make sure your, your new tech is actually being able to stay compliant, but also deliver on your business model. Buying the compliance experience, I, I imagine, is a huge part of it. It's interesting, as I said, because we've only seen, you know, in the UK, we've seen uh, Tandem by Harrods Bank. And I, I wonder how many other banks are available that a fintech might be able to buy in the UK. I don't know. Um, trying to think how many have 
banking licenses, full on banking licenses. And I'm only coming up with some of the smaller building societies. I don't know, Joe, what about in, in the Netherlands? Um, does this seem like a model that, that might be appropriate for fintechs there? Well, it's very you know, similar to the UK. We only have a handful of banks that uh, that would be worth buying other than in, in, in North America. There, there's so many of these well, sort of smallish banks that uh, that this seems like an acquisition of a, a, a smaller bank. So, no, the, the Dutch banking um, world looks looks a bit like uh, the British one. All right. Well, um, it sounds like it may well be a model that we will see uh, more of in the future, though it seems uh, likely, uh, more likely that it will be happening in places like the US, where you've got a larger number of those those smaller banks that um, are, you know, more likely to be uh, within the price range, shall we say, of a fintech. But um, I don't know. We may be proved wrong. So let's see if the next purchase comes in the Netherlands. Let's wait and see. Um, Speaking of new banks, uh, the next story today is bringing us over to the UK, and it's that Starlink has followed Monzo with a new charging structure. Um, Starlink has also launched a children's card offering. So if we start with the, the fees... Uh, so following Monzo's new uh, fee system announcement, uh, Starling will also add a £5 fee for replacement cards along with a £2 fee for the, the new kids' cards it's launching. So if you want any of the kids' cards, you've got to pay £2. Um, the bank will also launch a charge of £20 for large same-day chaps payments as well as introducing a negative interest rate of 0.5% for its euro account holders who have more than 50,000 euro in their accounts. Uh, all these new charges come into force on the 4th of November this year. Starling has also announced the launch of its new children's dedicated card called Starling Kite, which is aimed at children aged 6 to 15. Uh, once those children turn 16, they are then invited to open a Starling Teen account. Um, Starling, additionally on the fees, uh, will launch a fee for its connected card, which exists for vulnerable users. Um, this will also get a £2 monthly fee, but it won't affect anybody who's already got the product. Um, so the changes in charges come as Britain's new wave of challenger banks bear down on unsustainable freebies in a bid to cut costs and drive towards profitability. Okay, so this is interesting. So obviously, Monzo um, announced it had launched a new fee structure first. Um, and now these are completely new fees on, on things that um, had historically been free. When Monzo announced it, they did um, some really interesting work in the background. And basically, if you use Monzo as your main bank, so you get X amount deposited or your salary every month, you use it every day to make payments, um, then the fees, a lot of the fees didn't actually apply to you. Um, they were targeted more at the people who use Monzo specifically for like a travel card, so only use it when they're abroad, or they use it to um, withdraw large sums of cash frequently. So they pointed out that the average Monzo customer withdraws very, very little cash over the course of a month. So those customers wouldn't have to pay any of the new fees. Um, customers that did use their ATM card on a regular basis would be the ones in line for the fees. Um, what Starling's done here, again, I mean, sorry, my point would be that that sounds quite reasonable for me from Monzo and quite interesting as well that the fees will apply to some customers and not others depending on usage. Um, I don't know that I've seen uh, the larger banks do that, although I may be wrong, but then I don't bank with a larger bank anymore. So what would I know? Um, but the Starling fees again sound quite reasonable to me, like charging for a replacement card uh, doesn't seem awful. Um, and also charging a fee for the new types of cards um, it doesn't seem, you know, something that's completely unreasonable. Um, and again, although, Andy, you might know more about this than me, but charging a fee for, for same-day chaps payments, I think that's quite common, is it not? That, that's, that's very common, yeah. And yeah. actually, the, the sum they've gone for is not exactly um, 
it, it's quite a common fee, really. Yeah. So I, what I'm saying is, I think these fees don't sound unreasonable to me. Does anybody disagree? I'm going to say, you'd, you'd agree they sound unreasonable or they don't sound unreasonable? I think they're reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> do you pay fees in the, what are the fees, banking fees like in the Netherlands? Do you, do you generally pay for, for, for what you might call basic, I suppose, banking services? Yes, you'd okay. have a, 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 a monthly fee and you have negative interest rates since a couple of months now. Uh, some banks are way up in the millions and some are, are, low, are lower numbers when you pay negative interest fees. And I'm, I'm not sure about losing cards, etc. but I'm, I think um, it's the same here. You pay, you pay for that. I, I actually think that they're very reasonable. Right? I think the problem we have slightly in this country is that we seem to think that um, banking should be free. You know, we really do. And it's a shame that we don't have a, a regulatory point where you can't subsidise current accounts. Because if you couldn't subsidise current accounts, then we would all get used to these fees to an extent. And then by getting used to those fees, people like Starling and Monzo would be probably profitable far earlier because they would feel that they could come to the market and actually compete on a level playing field. If you look at others who are subsidising what the current account is, that means you know, a Starling and Monzo, a Tandem, when they you know, came as a bank, they actually come to market and say, well, I've got to give that away for free. So actually what I'm doing is I'm subsidising it with capital that's been injected by shareholders. And that's... That's actually why people then start questioning models and everything else around it. It all comes down to the fact that we've got used to free banking. I completely agree. And what, what the average person on the street doesn't know is that their their high street bank free current account is subsidised by overdrafts, credit cards, mortgages, savings, insurance, whatever other products those those banks might offer. And ultimately, the goal, if you look at it, from, from my perspective, but again, fully aware that I know more about this than the average person on the street, though certainly not everything, is that I would rather pay reasonable fees on my current account and have much better rates on my loans, my overdrafts, whatever else, you know, across the board to have more reasonable fees, you know, all the way through than what some of the larger banks do, which is charge much higher rates than they need to on those, um, uh, you know, supplementary products so that you can get the current account for free. I think that's kind of what you were saying, Andy, right? Yeah, yeah. and you have... Well, it's not just that, they're just subsidised, even if those, even if you were to sit around and say, well, those loans are absolutely great value for money, which which many of them are, right? They're still actually subsidising that current account. So if you're going to come out and play as a bank, we went through ring fencing and um, you know, we should have taken that further in my mind to, to actually enable competition to come up through, through these other challenger banks. Um, we should get used to it. Um, and it's, it's a weird situation because the people who pay most are the people who are actually the most vulnerable financially. They're the people who are borrowing each and every single month. They're the people who end up paying for me to have a, a current account that's free. And you could argue that that's completely not right. I should be paying for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree. And I think, you know, the one thing that when we, we bring in charges, we have to remember is that the EU, when we get to Brexit, is that the EU rule states you must provide free current free accounts for those who need them. So you must give them a free account somewhere they can hold money and a means of electronic payment. That is a requirement um, for you as a bank under EU rules, whether that will still be the case in a few months. Who knows in the UK? But um, just want to hear a little bit about the second part of the announcement. So that was that they um, Starlink has launched this uh, new product, which is aimed at children. Um, to hear more more about that, uh, we spoke to Alexandra Freen, Head of Corporate Affairs at Starling Bank. So let's hear from her now. Starling Kite is to help children learn about money and get into good spending habits. What's the best age to start children on pocket money? How much pocket money should you give them? 
Are you aware that they're learning all their spending habits from watching you and how you behave around money? With the Starling Kite account, parents can uh, load pocket money onto the child's card. It's a flat fee of £2 a month per space, and you can get up to six spaces if you've got up to six children. So uh, good luck with that. We've also announced negative interest rates on our euro accounts. Um, we're introducing a negative interest rate of 0.5% on account holders who've got a balance of more than 50,000 euros in their accounts. So if you've got 51,000, you only pay that negative interest rate so on the top 0.5%. It affects a very small number of customers, less than 1%. We're doing it just to bring up the account in line with the negative interest rates that have prevailed in Europe for some time now. And also, uh, you might be interested to know that, um, you know, the Bank of England has talked about the possibility, we hope it won't happen, of negative interest rates being introduced in the UK. And it's put the banks on notice to get ready for it and make sure their technology can implement it. Well, we've shown with this that our technology is already um, uh, ready for that. That's a wrap from me. Bye-bye. So that's interesting. Um Andy, I know you have kids. Does, does this something that would appeal to you? Or is it even something you've thought about? I mean, I don't know how old your kids are, but is it something you've thought about, you know, how to teach them about money and, and, and whether, you know, it's appropriate to give them their own spending cards? And if you do, how you manage that kind of thing? Or have you not got there yet? Uh, no, no, we've, we've got there because I think kid, kids grow up a lot faster than you actually think they do. So, I mean, our kids start at nine, at six and six, and then, you know, three and we've got another one on the way right so i i need those six slots that she's just thought about <laughs> i didn't know i didn't know you had another one on the way that that, that makes sense <laughs> congratulations um no so we have we have we have we've been talking about it quite a lot but what's really interesting it's quite hard to actually teach kids about the value of money with with something that's not tangible so you know they, they are very tech savvy and everything else but essentially a number's a number it's all virtual in, in their mind so it's very throwaway so they see you tapping and paying with with cards um, it's meaningless to them. So we've found that we've had to go back to cash almost to actually start teaching them that you know, this amount of money is not going to buy you a lot and this amount of money is going to buy you a little bit more. And they start understanding that a little bit more. Um, I did see some things um, like gamification for savings for kids. And I think actually that's probably more powerful than a debit card. The debit card is meaningless to them, to be honest with you. It's great that they feel like they've got their own money. You can go, if you take them somewhere, if you're ever allowed to go back in a shop, you can go in there and say, you know, what would you like to buy? You've got X amount of money. If they can see it and feel it or, or rattle something, it's actually quite interesting. But when it's just a debit card and it's, it, it, yeah, we think it's you know, it's quite tough. It's interesting, but two quid for it as well. Yeah, well, I mean, the fee aside, I think there's an important point about that, the value of money. And I don't think it's just kids. I think that there are adults now who struggle to budget because money is kind of meaningless because it's just tap, tap, tap. And, and it's a number that you may or may not look at sometimes. Um, Joe, what about you? Do you? I mean, I don't know if you have kids, but generally speaking, what are your thoughts on this as a product for, for children? I think it's really good. One thing, um, we know that um, stickiness with kids and banks is quite high, so I can understand uh, the bank making this move. Yes, I have two children, uh, 13 and 10 years, um, and uh, we're going through the same, trying to teach them um, how to manage their money, and we've tied it to... Uh, to physical things. That's the way we've done it, Andrew. So we've said to our 13-year-old daughter, you've got uh, X amount of money, you have to buy your own clothes every month. If you're going to burn it at Starbucks on day one, um, I won't say you're going to be running around but naked, but ultimately <laughs> you're going to be in trouble because you can't come back for more. Um, so that's that's the way we've uh, been when trying to teach them how uh, something very um, intangible uh, translates to, to the real world. So it sounds like the importance here will be that connected, you know, maybe the connected app 
that goes with the card and, and how well the kids can interact with that and how, how educational it is. Well, I'm going to move on now as we're getting to the end of the show, but just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover. Um, there's so much happening this week, uh, we can't cover it all, but these stories deserve a shout out. The first one is that the Australian fintech inquiry has called for regulatory reform. So an inquiry by the Australian Senate Committee into fintech has put forth 32 recommendations to promote further competition in the financial sector with a particular focus on regulation. The report identifies big challenges in taxation, access to capital, skills, culture and regulation itself. It spotlights regulatory fragmentation as a key area of focus, with multiple agencies having overlapping responsibilities for promoting competition. Australian government reforms on open banking through the Consumer Data Rights Act is recognised as one positive step, but further refinement is required if it is to be truly effective. Drew Bragg, the senator who led the inquiry, said our inquiry recommends a new national body to deliver the consumer data right. It needs focus and accountability and the capacity to run a public information campaign. He says there is evidence of anti-competitive behavior on the behalf of the big banks and evidence that the regulators are not properly organized to drive competition. So, um, All of this sounds entirely believable to me. Um, You know, we think we've got small banking markets um, in the UK and the Netherlands. You know, Australia's got even fewer uh, banks with even more power because they've they've spent a lot of time um, building up their, uh, well, they didn't basically have a recession the last time around. So they they spent a lot of time and effort on building up their services. Um, It all sounds, I can believe every word of it. Um, I would love to see it being effective. I would love to see the recommendations put into practice. I am just slightly sceptical that they will be able to do all the things they want to do, um, given the other challenges they have to face. But all in all, regulatory reform and promotion of competition sounds like good things to me. It's just a case of how they actually do it and if it's effective. So the next story we didn't have time to cover today is that Robinhood is facing hefty SEC fines for high-speed trade deals. Popular stock trading app Robinhood is being investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, for failing to disclose that it sold clients' orders to high-speed trading firms. Robinhood did not disclose this on its app until 2018. The fintech giant could face a fine of more than $10 million if it agrees to settle the investigation, which is at an advanced stage, but the fine has yet to be negotiated. Uh, While payment for order flow is common for retail brokerages, critics say it creates a conflict of interest. Uh, So Robinhood has added millions of funded accounts just this year, and in recent weeks it has seen record revenue growth, with investors keen to take advantage of market volatility during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, as well as uh, people having more disposable income basically as they stop traveling, uh, stop commuting, um, stop depending on going out. They've got more money, they're investing and saving it more. Um, So last month, Robinhood hit a valuation of $11.2 billion. So we knew it was doing this. Those of us in the industry <laughs> knew this is exactly what its business model was. Um, I'm pleased that the SEC is getting around to calling it to account for it. Um, I, I'm always amazed that it takes regulators so long to get round to to issuing fines for, for this kind of behaviour. Um, I think it's good that it's being called to account, um, not least because it might mean that some of its customers understand that what seems like a free deal is actually not as good um, as it sounds. Um, and, you know, we're actually getting down to the bottom of what free actually means. Um, and I'm all for customers having a better understanding of the products they're using. So, The next story today um, is that the FCA is going to focus on vulnerable clients. 
In August, the FCA released its guidance consultation on vulnerable customers, along with an updated financial live survey and 21 in-depth case studies. As expected, it acknowledges the impact of COVID-19. It has worsened vulnerability and prompted different and lasting impacts on those who've suffered as a direct or indirect consequence of the pandemic. So 23% um, of people in the UK have been furloughed or suffered a loss of income. The report elevates the pressure on advisors to start implementing the practical changes required to ensure vulnerable people experience outcomes that are just as good as other consumers' outcomes. Uh, in future, they want to see the issue being taken seriously and companies embedding a vulnerable-centric approach into culture, policies, and across the full customer experience. There will be a heightened intention to intervene where there is actual or potential harm to vulnerable customers. And in 2023, the FCA will evaluate the actions companies have taken and whether there has been enough improvement. So um, this is, you know, it, it, it's again, this sounds brilliant. Um, vulnerable customers obviously need to be considered. Um, historically, they have been left by the sidelines somewhat. Uh, what I will say is that a large number of banks, both big and small, um, in the last couple of years have really upped their game on this. They've really bought uh, vulnerable customers front and center. Um, they've introduced programs specifically designed to help identify those vulnerable customers and check that they're getting the help and support they need. Um, so it's good to see that the SCA is, is looking at it, um, and particularly you know, in light of, of, of recent circumstances. Um, it, it's just going to be really, the most interesting thing to me is going to be how much change we see, how quickly we see it, and whether the FCA is actually able to um, enforce uh, you know, that, that attention and that focus on, on vulnerable customers to ensure they are getting the same treatment as other customers. So now we're on to our and finally story, and that's that PayPal has terminated accounts linked to a Russian anti-Western influence operation. So PayPal has terminated multiple accounts linked to a recently uncovered Russian influence operation that is said to have paid US and British writers for content published on a page called Peace Data, as it was considered to be aimed at influencing progressives and sowing discord in the West something the organization denies. Well, I suspect it would. Um, it was stated that the site was linked to individuals associated with past activity by the Russian Internet Research Agency. The site published an array of content from established freelance journalists, some of it pushing an obvious geopolitical agenda. PayPal, after being provided a list of accounts on its site linked to Russian activity, said it had picked up on suspicious activity associated with the accounts, which have now been terminated. Uh, in a post following its outing, Peace Data said it was shocked and appalled by the suggestion, which has also been levelled not just by PayPal, but also the FBI and Facebook, that it is part of a Russian influence operation. The site's purported editor, that's Business Insider's language, not mine, is Jake Sullivan, the name of a former advisor to Hillary Clinton. His photo appears on just one other website, a Russian shipping company, where he's identified as a satisfied customer named Sergey. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's the best bit about it for me, that last bit, I have to say. I was going I was going through it thinking, well, you know, sounds sounds like the Americans, but um, I got to the end and, and I thought, oh, right, well, they might have a point. Um does anybody have any thoughts on this one? Maybe Sergey's picture was a deep fake. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me just makes me and this will only makes sense to people in the UK, but it makes me think of the meerkat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Andy knows what I mean. I, I think Joe thinks you've gone completely mad. I'm uh, lost. There is there is a, a popular um, advert on on television uh, which is um, populated by Russian meerkats. It's, I, I can't explain. <laughs> one's the called Sergey. Yeah. yeah, one's called Sergey, and one's called Alexander. <laughs> and I can't explain the British sense of humour to you. So sorry about that. Um, did you have any any? Sorry, I'll stop whittering now. Do you have any proper thoughts on that? 
Um, well, to me, I mean, it's it, it's it, it's an interesting story, but it's a great example of of we need to know who's who online, right? Uh, that's the business um, I'm in, we are in, and this is a great example of how we <clears throat> we need to start um, uh, understanding. And uh, the other one is. Um, I'm questioning the fact that we're expecting a company like PayPal to really do that gatekeeper function. Um, yeah. That that is that is that was also one, on a sensible point. What what I was thinking was thinking well if if the FBI, but then also PayPal and Facebook are involved, whose job actually is this? Um, and if I don't know if the FBI has issued stop orders to PayPal saying you must stop these people's accounts because of we have done X, Y, Z. That's one thing, but it wasn't clear to me, and maybe I, I misunderstood it, whether PayPal had taken the action or whether f- the FBI had said, based on our evidence, you must do this. Well, PayPal would have an obligation to, I think, don't they? So part of their sanction screening and, or well, maybe not sort of specifically sanction screening, but the, the thing crime ongoing KYC and stuff would, would imply that they would be checking that a little bit. I would have thought. Yeah, I, I, I really How don't deep know. do you... How deep you go into that? I don't know. Do you, do you start trying to find Russian <laughs> Sergeys online? I don't know. Well, that's that's kind of what I mean. I, I I see your point, and I think you know, obviously, PayPal has to monitor any suspicious activity. But I don't think trawling journalistic websites for fake pictures falls into that, or does it? This is me showing I don't know much about it. Sorry, Joe. I just said not yet, uh, but um, <clears throat> as this uh, as this sort of starts. Uh, um, um, elevating and, and becoming more prevalent, then I think that's one of the problems we're going to have. We're going to see um, uh, general public expecting the companies like uh, PayPal doing that sort of functions and, and and trawling through and trying to find out what's real and what's not. Mm. Well, there's, there's, if you think about the, the, the burden of responsibility that sits on banks in terms of ongoing KYC, sanctions, PEPs, AML, all of that sort of stuff, that's kind of distributed across every single bank and financially regulated institution. We do have an expectation that they're doing a great job. I think it's more to do with actually in the future, how do these institutions get notified quickly? Because that article does read like PayPal may have done something wrong, but actually they probably haven't. And it's kind of like, you know, what was our expectations and the notification process of, you know, if, if that is the case, then... Is that, is that published on the sanctions list, blah, 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 and then they, is in Dan's paper to be doing ongoing KYC and monitoring of that in a more effective way. It's, yeah, it needs ironing out somewhat, shall we say. Yeah. No, I think I think more details needed there, and, and, and as we say, you know, we, we need to know a little bit more about it, perhaps, before we can pass judgment one way or, on the, or the and, other. And, and Sarah, you need to find out if Alex, Alexander is actually his partner in crime for Sergei's. Yeah, I need to do some work on that. Actually, I used to know somebody who worked for that company, but they've left since. So I'll um, I'll, I'll have to see if I can dig out any contacts. Um, right. On that note, I'm going to go and do some research and wrap up this week's news show. So thank you so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Andy? Uh, so uh, Twitter is probably the easiest place, or through the RTGS Global website. But on Twitter, I'm fintech Andrew. Perfect, Joe. How about you? Um, if you want to know more about MyTech, go to mytechsystems.com and otherwise happy to pick up a conversation on LinkedIn. Brilliant. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make us better and helps others to find the show. 
Speaking of making it better, we'd love for you to give us your thoughts via our super quick survey. Just visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, or just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.